Well, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and we are super excited that you're able to connect with us in whatever way you can, whether you're here in person or joining us online. We love the fact that we are able to come together and engage with God together. Um, If you are joining us online, we know there's a lot of different ways you can do it. There is one we recommend. It's our online platform at onelifeseattle.org slash live, and it's got a lot of cool things there for you. You got a digital connection card online to our uh, prayer team, uh, access to them uh, with some notes and some Bible tabs, all kinds of stuff. So if that's available to you, please uh, go check that out. If not, again, we're just happy that you're with us in whatever way uh, you can be. So with that, let's... Let's pray. God, we give you great thanks uh, today, even as we think back about us being here for 11 years and remembering that today and all the ways that you have guided, led, kept, sustained, uh, given life, all the things that you've done uh, in our lives, in this space, in this neighborhood, in the city, uh, we're just so thankful for. And we just ask that you would continue to, to do that. And, and even today, we would be mindful of what you've brought us through and also where you are leading us as we uh, talk about wisdom and what it means not only to have wisdom, but how to live that out and, and act on that. I pray you, you'd bless us uh, and, and that we would hear from you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in uh, week six, the last week of our sermon series called Get Wisdom, where we've been exploring uh, the book of Proverbs. And what we've been doing is not so much like looking at every one of the Proverbs, but we've been trying to sort of build almost like a toolbox of how to read the Proverbs. So we hit some of the main themes. We talked about uh, what the, how the book is arranged and what it looks like, all with the goal of helping us to engage with this in the future and in, in our day-to-day lives in ways that'll help. And, and each time we've kind of gone through some of the, what I like to call the stats or just some of the main aspects of it, so we're going to do that again, that uh, the book of Proverbs is from the Old Testament of the Bible. That's the part of the Bible that we read. It's a big hunk, and it's before we get to the Gospels, the part that starts talking specifically about Jesus and telling the Jesus story about his birth and life and death and resurrection. And so even though the Old Testament points to that, it's this big section before we actually start getting into those Gospel sections. It's also, within that Old Testament, it's part of a subsection of literature. It's a genre that's called the wisdom writings, and that also includes uh, the Psalms, Job, and the Song of Songs. And they're labeled and categorized this way because they have a specific way they're structured and almost a specific way they're trying to tell uh, the story of God. And so they're, they're put in that subsection. It is a compilation of sayings, discourses, thoughts, almost like a playlist, if you will, of, uh, of thoughts about wisdom um, from various authors, one of the most prominent being King Solomon, uh, the son of David, and uh, if you remember, he asked God to give him wisdom, and so God did, uh, and, and so he wrote many of these. And then lastly, it was assembled by this final editor uh, sometime between 540 B.C. and 332, which is significant because it puts it right after or sometime after uh, the Babylonian captivity. So Israel was taken into uh, Babylon, into captivity, and then at some point they were released to go back and they could rebuild the temple. They were still under the captivity, but they were allowed this freedom again to worship uh, in, in the, the rebuilt temple. And one of the reasons we wanted to highlight that is to just remember that historical context is important. 
right? It, it, it makes sense if you're coming back from a time of being in exile that was facilitated certainly in part by your own actions to, like, let's, let's put down some things, let's gather together some things that maybe will help us stay off that path, right? And so we've talked a lot about pathways, and I don't know if you've noticed so many of the slides we've used have had images of paths on them. It's been just another way to highlight this idea of being on a pathway and that um, Rich really, uh, I thought, eloquently and well went through that, the difference between the path of wisdom and the path of folly. Um, and that, that the book of Proverbs is really trying to help stay on the path of wisdom. Um, as we've gone through this, um, we have uh, kind of walked through several things, and I want to um, highlight those things that we went through. Um, and if I can find them, well, I didn't put them in here. Oh, well. So I'll highlight them anyways. Uh, we just won't have slides. That's fine. Um, we talked about what is wisdom. Um, and we said it's the bringing of one's life, conduct, and policy into the coherence with a generative resolve for shalom. And really what that means is it's us discovering ways and living off those ways to live, move, and have our being in relationship with God in ways that bring about shalom, everything being right for everyone. We talked about how Scripture, especially in the wisdom literature, invites us to resist sort of the quick and easy fixes and instead to wrestle and engage over time so that we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ, becoming more like God. We talked about the fear of the Lord. In the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, and then in chapter 9, verse 2, it talks about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. And Rich, again, I think he said this really well. He said another way to look at that is just, it's just taking God seriously. Right? Then we look at God, the, the creator of the universe, and just the vastness that just even in that phrase exists. Can we enter that space and take God seriously? And that, that taking God seriously is sort of the launch of wisdom. We looked at the theme of friendship in the book of Proverbs and talked about what it means to be faithfully present. We looked at a story of two friends in the Old Testament, David and Jonathan, and how they were faithfully present to one another and how we can do that in our lives. And then we looked at the power of our words. The power of our words have life, the power of life and death. And the things we say can be so important. And today we're going to close with something that I want to call holy curiosity. And it's really sort of an exploration of, okay, now that we've talked about <clears throat> what it means to to, to, to have wisdom in some of the ways uh, we can see that. What does it look like to really live that out across a lifetime? And I want to uh, show you a quote by Albert Einstein. Plus, I just love this picture of Einstein. Um, the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existence. One cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mystery of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries to merely comprehend a little of this mystery each day. And there's a guy named uh, David Haskell who wrote this book that's called uh, The Forest Unseen. And it was a finalist in the Pulitzer Prize uh, for the Pulitzer Prize in, uh, in 2017. Um, and it's this book where he's a, he's a scientist and he goes out and he observes one square meter of old growth forest almost every day for a year. And the, the things that he observes, you would think that he was like walking through the most lush, amazing, just unlimited space in the world. 
Right? And so we see that when Einstein says, if one even tries to comprehend a little of this mystery each day, and then we have someone who did it, and they were able to discover and observe so many amazing things in just one square meter. Einstein also says, never lose a holy curiosity. And I think that's what this person, David Haskell, did. Had a curiosity that so drove him to say, I can even take one square meter of space That's where that, I think that fear of the Lord, that awe comes from. Um, as we walk through this, one of the things that I, I had been thinking about is sort of as we grow and we learn um, kind of God's role in that. And that I think that God delights in our discovering, not just things about him, but things about his creation that point back to him. And I think this is the way it's always been and always meant to be, that we're always, even before the fall, meant to be learning, discovering, exploring, growing, gaining wisdom. And I think we have certain images of life before the fall of man, fall of humanity, when we branched off from God, tried to make decisions on our own, gain wisdom on our own. Um, that don't uh, do justice to that story and in the picture there. Um, in the ancient Near East, uh, the temples that other cultures built had gardens. And these gardens and courtyards were tended by human beings. Uh, and the role of it was, though, the human beings were there to tend them to take care of the gods, right? And in, in other ancient Near Eastern cultures around uh, where the Israelites were uh, growing and moving. These cultures had temples and gods, um, but their gods needed to be fed. They needed to be woken up. They needed to be put to bed. Um, it's kind of this weird relationship, but the humans were there to serve the gods in those ways. And so there were these gardens around the temples, and those were there to gather stuff to feed and take care of the gods. In the creation story, that we read in scripture though, Yahweh, the God of Israel, creates a temple palace that is the universe and then places humanity in that temple as his divine image. And within that, there is this other interesting thing that in the ancient Near East, when they were building a temple, it was a seven-day ceremony that happened. It's interesting that the opening of the Torah, the first Five books of the Bible in Genesis, the first book, has a seven-day pattern of God creating a temple. And in chapter two, there's a reiteration of this creation story in a garden where humanity is charged with caring for the garden. Well, how can we care about it if we don't know about it? How can we steward creation if we don't understand some things about it? And so I think from the very beginning, there was this charge God gave us to, to steward creation. But I also think there was a charge to discover it, to explore it, to learn, to know, to grow. And I think God loves that. I think God delights in that. And I think we see that in the naming of the animals, where we see the, 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 the first human created is charged with naming the animals. And I know in my brain, I've always had this picture of the first human being sitting on a rock and like this huge line of animals and 
And that first human being going, monkey, elephant, mosquito, not sure why you're here, but move along. Um, you know, in this kind of way. But um, this author, I really like, Donald Miller, he talked about it and he said, what if it wasn't like that? What if, what if this human being actually took some time and observed each animal and, and learned about it and gave it a name that fit not only its structure but kind of how it worked and how it operated? And he even went on to say, what if this process took like a really long time and the first human being had to like go around and travel and discover things and was climbing mountains to find mountain goats and swimming in the ocean to find ocean critters? It's just this really beautiful picture, I think, though, but of the process, though, that God invited the first human being to come and explore and then name. And since then, we've been on a path of exploration, discovery, and learning. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. It's not about God hiding things, but it's about when an artist creates something and someone's observing it and they go, oh, did you see that? What about that part? Did you see that Easter egg in the Star Wars trailer? Right? The creators love that when people discover that. And God loves it when we discover things. We have those aha moments. Uh, Sir Francis Bacon, the father of empiricism and the scientific method, says this about this proverb. It's as if according to the innocent play of children, the divine majesty took delight to hide his works in the end to have them found out. And as if kings could not obtain a greater honor than to be God's playmates in that game. I know many of you have heard this story before, so I'll tell it briefly. My oldest daughter, daughter Gianna, when she was like three, um, it was one of her first camping trips where she was kind of able to remember and, uh, and, and, and really engage with stuff. And we let her stay up uh, till the sun went down and it was dark, but we were out in eastern Washington and the stars were just beautiful. And so we were talking about that and talking about how God had created that. And one of the comments she made is she said, Dad, uh, God had fun. And I was like, oh, I kind of forgot that, right? And that not just God had fun, but God had like the best fun, the purest fun, like the source of all fun. And sometimes we need those moments where someone else can speak to us and open us up to something we may not have seen. Because too often we sort of imprint our own ideas on things. And that's not always bad, but sometimes it can be problematic. One of the things we discover if we look at... Um, the Old Testament, Old Testament law specifically, and, and I think this has to do with how over time we've, we've shifted. How many of you have had a conversation recently or even in the last five years where you said something like, you know, when I was growing up, I used to know phone numbers, right? And some of you, and I can even recite not just my own phone number, but my best friend's phone number, my grandparents' phone number, right? I can right now remember two phone numbers, um, and one of them is my own, so that doesn't even really count. Um, but we have shifted in some ways from, from knowing things to becoming more managers of things. And we were still a manager of it before, but we knew it. And so now we just have to find it. I don't necessarily have to know it. I could just find it. Um, and, and when we look at the Old Testament law, one of the challenges is that we impose, I think, a, an understanding of the law that doesn't fit how the law was used. And so then we become unaware of how those laws functioned 
in the larger culture. And so when we look at law right now, specifically case law, like we go find a case that really matches as best we can the situation we're trying to figure out now. And we say, okay, in these three cases that were like this, the verdicts were this. So therefore, we should rule this way now. But the Old Testament law and the Proverbs were not meant to be looked at that way. The idea was instead you immerse yourself in these, you read them, you pour over them, you meditate, you ponder, you challenge them, you're challenged by them, and it would do what we call get into your bones where it's like just inside you. And the hope was then not that you you could recite the law, but that through that immersion and life experience and living it out, that you would develop the capacity to make a wise decision. So when we come to a law like this, a case law, if anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. If anyone's bull injures someone else's bull and it dies, the two parties are to sell the live one and divide both the money and the dead animal equally. Okay? So the hope is not that when a person encounters that same situation, they go back and say, okay, let's look there. This law says this. The hope is that, again, this immersion in the whole of Scripture, in the whole book of Proverbs, has created in them an ability to make a sound decision. It's almost like learning how to walk, right? At some point, when I was learning how to walk, I didn't have to go, okay, I didn't even know what this foot was, but whatever you, I gotta move you forward. And then I gotta look at the other one and move the other one. At some point, I got better at it. And then I could run, skip, leap, jump, speed up, slow down, do cartwheels on good days. But the point is, is it became part of an internal part of me that knew what to do. And the idea is, is that we can't look at the Proverbs and go, okay, I gotta find that one because that tells me. The idea is, is you're immersed in the whole. It facilitates growth and wisdom as you live life and experience these things. And so I want to look at an example of this lived out and, and what it did. Um, and we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians. We're going to be talking about a guy named Paul. And we've talked about him recently uh, in, in a study we did on the book of Galatians. Um, but I want to give just a quick recap of who Paul is. So according to this picture, he's a rough-looking guy, but I love that beard, so we've got to keep it. Uh, Paul was originally named uh, Saul of Tarsus. He was named Saul and Paul, but he switched uh, to Paul eventually. Um, he was a Pharisee, which is a, uh, one of the religious leaders of Jesus' time, and they were, if you remember, they were one of the groups that was really bent against him and eventually took part in uh, having him executed. Um, <clears throat> and so he was a member of this group, and so it, it's interesting to how that uh, where he was from and where he ended up being. Um, and so he was persecuting, persecuting Christ's followers and uh, overseeing their deaths and approving of their deaths. We read about that in Acts with uh, one of the church leaders named Stephen. It says he was there and approved of this. And he even asked for specific permission to go to different places and have uh, Christ's followers arrested. Um, but then he has this interaction with the risen Christ, with Jesus after he's been uh, raised from the dead. And it's this moment where he's literally knocked down um, and he is blinded and he has this discussion with Jesus and Jesus says, go, someone's gonna meet you. And this guy meets him and says, okay, I'm gonna, 
you know, I'm supposed to meet you even though I know who you are and I really don't like meeting you because uh, you have a reputation. It doesn't feel good or safe to be around you. Uh, but God's told me to do that. And so he prays for Paul and says these things like scales fell off of his eyes and he could see something new. And what he discovered was Christ in him. Uh, and so he becomes a follower of Jesus. And not only does he become a follower of Jesus, but he becomes a leader in the early church and what is called an apostle to the Gentiles. And what's so fascinating about that is that a Gentile is a person who is not Jewish. And for a Pharisee, this was a huge issue because the Gentiles were seen as unclean because they usually had a lot of different gods they worshipped. And so that automatically would make them unclean to a Jewish person. But really, the Pharisees who were so focused on maintaining the law. So isn't it amazing that Paul, this guy, goes through this huge transformation from being a persecutor of Christ followers, then to becoming a Christ follower, then to becoming a leader in the church, but a leader who would go to the very people who were seen as unclean. It's a huge, huge deal. And he had a relationship as he went around. To, he planted a lot of churches in the Mediterranean, and one that he had a relationship was this church in Corinth, but it wasn't an easy relationship. There's indications that there were as many as five letters written by Paul to the Corinthian church and some that were written back. We only have two of them, but it gives us insight into this relationship. It's a deep relationship that brings both joy and a lot of pain. And in the second letter that we have, uh, we find Paul getting at some of these things. In 2 Corinthians uh, 7, 2 through 4, Paul says, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take pride, great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. That first phrase, make room for us in your hearts. I think you can get a sense of the, the closeness that Paul feels with this group. And, and, and right now feels an absence of that closeness. Make room for us in your hearts. <clears throat> uh, and in chapter 5, 11 through 21, we're going to spend just a little bit of time here. Um, and this is uh, more in that letter. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people, but we are well known to God, who what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know if you noticed, right at the beginning of that was the fear of the Lord. Right at the beginning, Paul says, we know what the fear of the Lord is. We know the fear of the Lord. And so I wanted to see, there's that phrase again, that's the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. Where does that take Paul in this passage? First, he says, God knows me. God knows who I am. God knows what I'm doing. And he goes on to say, and I hope you do too. But this first one is that the fear of the Lord, when we start there, we need to know we are known by God. I think that's an amazing thing. To know that the God that we talked about, this creator, knows each one of us intimately. He doesn't just know like, oh yeah, I, I see you on paper there, but knows our story, every single aspect of it. Next, it says that out of this fear of the Lord that they are compelled by Christ's love. He recounts that Christ died and rose again for all, that all might live and not for themselves but for him. And in this, Paul recognizes that Christ has done something for him. And it's out of this love that Paul realizes he's different, something has changed, and then he is compelled to do something, right? And so this fear of the Lord can compel us as we discover the love of God. Next, he says, we recognize no one in a worldly way. And what he means by this is when, when, when we talk about the worldly way in Scripture or the flesh, it often means <clears throat> kind of the way the world operates in, in that it's bent against God in ways. And so this is talking about that what are the ways that the world views humanity that are bent against God? And when I look at the world, again, we, we often look at people as uh, either something I'm going to use to climb up further, and whether that's in a, in a job or just in how I talk about people so I can feel better about myself. Um, we've mentioned this before, but um, the whole reality of pornography in the world is using people to make ourselves feel certain ways for pleasure that is not an appropriate way to do that. There's all kinds of ways that we look at other people, we don't look at other people, we abandon people, we use people. And Paul says, we recognize no one in a worldly way. Right? It could be conversations about racism. It could be conversations about seeing ourselves as better based on socioeconomic status. Paul says, we don't do that. That's, that's not, the fear of the Lord is wisdom does not lead us in that direction. He says we are a new creation. Every person in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and that applies to whether I'm thinking about others or I'm thinking about myself. I am a new creation. And he says that we become the righteousness of God. And whenever I read that, the phrase that enters my head, or the word that enters my head is what? We become the righteousness of God? That seems impossible. I feel like everything I've been told says, you cannot be righteous, you're not righteous, you're unclean, all these kinds of things. But this says that we become the righteousness of God in Christ. 
I think that's amazing that wisdom, when acted on, can bring this transformation in Christ. And then Paul says, this is all from God. All of it is God. God reconciled us to himself through Jesus. Doesn't count our sins against us. Loves us, provides a way for us to get back into relationship with him through Jesus. I think again we hear in this Paul's deep love for this group when he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so all that, the fear of the Lord, launched all of that. The beginning of wisdom made a pathway for all those things. Now, as we kind of start wrapping this up, one thing I want to say is that um, uh, I've talked a lot about shalom and flourishing life from wisdom and things like that. But if you don't feel like your life is flourishing, I want you to know it doesn't necessarily mean that you are not wise or that you're not operating in wise ways. There are certainly times in our lives where we experience hardship and trials that are not necessarily a result of us being wise or acting in wise or unwise ways. But I think how we respond to those things is an indicator of wisdom. How we deal with those things, even recognizing the parts where I have played a part in those situations, or recognizing that I haven't played a part, but how we engage with those in either way I think reveals to us something. How do we call out the things in our world that have facilitated the hardships and the wrong, both in the world and in our lives? And how do we respond to that calling even when it's calling something out in us? And how do I respond when I discover something in me that needs to change? And how do I respond when I see something that's not something I caused, but something still needs to change? Wisdom would impact all of those. Because wisdom is meant to be lived out, and there is this space we can occupy in Christ, that Christ is in us, that we can be empowered to endure, to overcome, to ask for help, to step further in, to step further out. It's a space where Christ can move. I have two closing quotes. One is by A.W. Tozer. It says, when we create God in our image, we end up with a God who can never surprise us, never overwhelm us, and never transcend us. He says, too, having this low view of God is the cause of a hundred evils, while a higher view of God is the solution to 10,000 problems. And G.K. Chesterton says, how much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God could smash your small cosmos. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, that's not exactly how I respond the first time I read that. But some of us need to have our small cosmos smashed. And some of us feel like everything has already been smashed. But this morning, wherever you're at, I hope you hear that in Christ, Jesus is closer than we can know ready to help, ready to rest with us, ready to comfort, ready to challenge, invite, ask, move, rebuke, flip tables, heal, turn water into wine, have breakfast, cast out calm storms, and much more. But it all starts with us taking him seriously. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. 
I have a few questions for you to ponder this morning, uh, and I'm going to read through them in a second and then pray, uh, and then the worship team will play instrumentally to give you a moment to reflect. Uh, please remember, if you want to send us your answers to any of these questions or anything else you're thinking about about the service today or whatever, uh, we would love to have you do that. You can use that online connection card uh, if you're joining us remotely, or there are cards on the seats for uh, those of you who are attending uh, in person today. I do want to let you know, too, that our prayer team is... Uh, back and ready to go so simply uh, click the request prayer button on our online uh, platform and they are there for anything you would like to pray over um, so here are the questions one out of the whole get wisdom series has there been any one thing that has stuck out to you any one thing when you think back for just a moment oh yeah that or if not just basically what do you remember from the series Right? Anything at all. It could be something we just talked about today or the very first week. Doesn't matter. But just what's something that you find when you ask that question that sticks with you? Second, when was the last time you were surprised by God? Uh, and then if you uh, are willing, please tell us what happened. We would love to hear about that. Um, and then lastly, would you say that you have been taking God seriously recently? If so, how have you seen that in your life? If not, do you even want to? And then what steps do you think you could take to move in that direction? So it's going to take a little bit of time just to sit and think about what have you been doing recently? How has that been going? Uh, and, then, and then respond to those. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a time of reflection, and we'll close with a song and benediction. God, again, I give you thanks um, that you have, uh, you have created and you have made us uh, wonderfully able to discover. And you have given us things to, to find and to, and to grow in and to learn about. And I pray we would have patience as we do this. God, I pray at times that we would actually, when we discover something, um, before just moving on to the next, could, could we sit for just maybe five seconds or just a few breaths? Think about what it is that we have discovered. Think about what it is we have learned, how we've grown. Maybe find you in that in a new way. God, I ask you be with us. Walk with us as we continue to grow and discover and that we would always glorify you in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.